Amen. Amen. All right, let's go. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your very own, take that one. Uh, I know it's just a cheap paperback Bible, but we believe that God uses his word in a big way, namely that he uses it to uh, teach us about himself and to change us. And so we believe that, uh, that if you don't have a Bible, you ought to take that one home and start reading it. We believe God will use it in a big way. And so, um, listen, uh, we have got all kinds of stuff plugged into this morning. We're running a little bit behind uh, based on you know, what we normally transition into the sermon time. And so I'll just be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not going to take a long time today. Uh, I, I didn't plan much. Uh, I just want to give kind of a scriptural framework, some lenses for us to kind of wrap our heads around why we're doing what we're doing today. All right? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, God brought this stuff. Let, he's good to us. Let's celebrate. Uh, but uh, I, I think the Bible actually commands us to celebrate in these moments. And so I want to I show you where that is. Um, and it's going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 23. But before we get there... Um, I don't know what your church background is. I know some of y'all, but maybe, maybe you're new to the church thing. And you, don't, you don't really know the Bible. You never read it for yourself. And so let me walk you through just a real quick overarching storyline of the Bible. It starts out in uh, perfection in the Garden of Eden. You may have heard of that place before, right? The Garden of Eden. God has created Adam and Eve to live and work in this perpetual place of wonder. All right? Everything is new. Everything is good. Everything is rhythmic and perfect, but that doesn't last very long, right? Uh, Satan comes into the scene, uh, twists God's words, uh, calls out God's character, impugns God, and gets Adam and Eve to grasp at joy themselves instead of finding it in God himself. Gets Adam and Eve to to cling to and chase after fulfillment and understanding of the world outside of the good creator, the one who made them and placed them there. And so sin enters into the world and it breaks everything. Right? If you want to boil it down as much as possible, it, it, we can pretty simply say it this way. We jacked this place up and now God's putting all the pieces together. All right? That's the overarching story of the Bible. We come in two and a half chapters into the Bible and we've already ruined it. And God is putting all the pieces back together. And he starts doing that with one single man named Abraham and his family. He calls out one single family, and this family would be quite comfortable on the set of a daytime soap opera. Drama everywhere, all right? Drama after drama after drama. If you read their family story, just a couple of generations in, you're starting to wonder, why would God love these people? Why would God make himself known to these people? Why would God continue to bless these people? And that's the question you ought to be asking, because the answer is, he shouldn't. He is good. The answer is, he has no business blessing Abraham and his family, and yet God is gracious. And yet God is merciful. And yet God is long-suffering, patient towards them. A few generations pass by, and this family of people turns into a nation of people. And they spend 400 years in slavery in the land of Egypt. There was a famine in their own land, the land of Canaan. God moves them from point A to point B. They end up in Egypt and they're enslaved there for 400 years. And they cry out to God, rescue us. God eventually listens to their cry. He raises up a guy named Moses. And through a series of plagues designed to completely undo the religious leaders of Egypt. He humbles the mightiest king the world has known by that point. And they let their slaves go. And then on 
from on their way there, on their way back to the land of Canaan, God stops them at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Charlton Heston goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments. God's law for his people, right? Now that God has rescued them out of slavery and called them to himself, these are going to be his laws for them. This is going to be how they live in proximity to a holy God and how they represent him and his name as his people to all the nations surrounding them. All right? That, that's the role of the law. We can, we can point to afterwards, uh, after the coming of Jesus, other purposes for the law, even greater purposes for the law. But, but for, for, for their optics, for, for their world that they live in, the law was given so that they could be near God and represent him. And those of you who know the story well, what happens after that? What happens after God hands Moses the Ten Commandments? Eh, thanks for playing. The golden calf happens in Exodus chapter 32. The Ten Commandments make their first appearance in Exodus chapter 20. So what's going on between there? Eleven chapters of God handing other commands to Moses to pass on to the people. The Ten Commandments make their first appearance in Exodus chapter 20. Moses doesn't come down from the mountain until Exodus 32. In between there, God is giving command after command after command, lining out the culture and the identity of this new nation of people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, whatever you want to call them. They had different names and different seasons for different purposes. God is outlining the identity of this new nation of people to Moses. And he gives them commands in that that 11 chapters about how how to own slaves and how to pay restitution. He gives them commands about uh, what the tabernacle is going to look like and what ought to be placed in it. He gives them commands about who the priests are going to be and how they're to consecrate themselves and even how they're to dress. And in Exodus 23, God gives them a calendar. He gives them a calendar. He spells out a system of holidays for this brand new Hebrew nation. So let's look at it real quick. Exodus 23, look at verse 10. God tells Moses this, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and whatever they le- and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Verse 12, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor nor let it be heard on your lips. 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, and of of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord of your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Okay, so in the middle of God handing down all of these commands for Moses to then turn around and pass on to the people, God spells out for them uh, some, some rhythms, all right, some rhythms of work and rest, of work and celebration after that rest. He spells it out for three specific things. Did you catch what those were? The first one is in verses 10 and 11. What does it say? For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie what? Fallow. So six years of planting, one year of rest. Six years of crops followed by one year of lying fallow. Six and one. Great. That's God's plan for how they're to handle their crops. Sounds awesome. I guess God's smarter than us. Sure, that works. He probably knows better, right? He created it. Sure. And listen, while we could, well, there's all kinds of good stuff that we could probably come up with. We could probably bring an agricultural specialist up here and say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And this is what will happen. The nutrients will blah, blah, blah. But an, an explicit command or explicit reason is given for us. In the back half of verse 11. Did you catch that? One thing is mentioned specifically. We, there's probably all these good reasons circling around this. But one reason is mentioned specifically. So what does it say? That the poor may eat. And the beasts may eat. Regular rest actually creates provision here. Does that make sense? Like wouldn't taking a year off make less than normal? But God spelled out for him, them here that the rest actually creates provision for others instead of just ourselves. So that's the first rhythm established. It's established over planting and harvesting. What about the second? Verse 12 is where we find the second one. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall what? Stop working. <laughs> your translation says, my translation says rest. That your ox and your donkey may have rest. All right, so... Uh, we see the Sabbath day, right? This is the rhythm of a week. Six days of work and a day of rest. Six days of work and a day of rest. Over and over and over again. Work six days, work hard for those six days, and then take your day off. Take your day off. But just like with the last one, right? We could probably throw out all these reasons why... God would say, do this or do that, but he gives us an, an explicit reason here. So what does it say? That your ox and your donkey need a break too. It's not just for you, it's also for those under your care. That your ox and your donkey and your slave and your, the alien in your midst, they need a break too. Okay, that sounds doable. I can trust God on that. What about the third one? Well, that's in verse 14, right? Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And then he lists out three different feasts. If you didn't notice, they all had capital letters. They're titles, right? So it's not the different names for the same feast. It's three different feasts. In verse 15, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in verse 16, we see the Feast of the Harvest and the Feast of the Ingathering. And those are kind of the same thing, but at two different times. The Feast of the Harvest and the Feast of the Ingathering. Now, now, this isn't all the feasts that Israel was commanded to observe. There's seven total. Right? But these three kind of all revolve around planting and harvesting those plants. Of planting and harvesting the crops. God mentions these three specifically because he's building something into the DNA, into the calendar 
and their identity of who they are. It revolved around putting in work and then taking some rest. Celebrating the finished job. And the commands are clear here. Crystal clear, in fact. There'll be seasons of work, and then there'll be moments of rest. And then follow that by seasons of work, and then there'll be moments of rest and celebration. These aren't merely a suggestion for this new nation of people. It's not thrown out there for them to consider squeezing into their calendar somehow. The assumption here is that these carry the threat of capital punishment. The death penalty. Flip over to Exodus chapter 31 real quick. I want to show you where. Don't like just making statements. Let's look at it. Exodus 31. We'll come back to chapter 23 in a little bit, but it'll be a little bit. Exodus 31. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses... You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That's a big word that means cleanse. All right, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does work on it, or any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among its people. Among his people, excuse me. 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave, Moses, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So remember when I said a while ago that the next 11 chapters was Moses still up on the mountain receiving commands from God? Guess where he still is. This is the end of that 11th chapter. And what does it say happens at the end of it? God hands him the tablet. He starts making the trek down. Then the golden calf happens. God brought up the Sabbath day again in the same conversation. You think he might think it's important? You think God just repeats himself for the fun of it? But this time, we get the penalty for breaking that command spelled out for us. So what is it? The death penalty. All right, flip over to chapter 35 real quick. So the golden calf thing happens. Moses gets mad, breaks the tablets, has to go back up. God gives him more in in chapter 34. And then chapter 35, Moses is now going to actually relay these commands to the people. All right? Verse, uh, Verse 1 of chapter 35. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel. How many people is that? Literally all of them, right? Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days you shall be done. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So literally the first thing out of Moses' mouth when it's time to relay God's commands onto the people is what? The Sabbath. He didn't start reading the Ten Commandments. That would be where I would start, right? God gave me stone tablets written with his finger. Let's go over them real quick. 
The first thing out of Moses' mouth is, hey, God's pretty serious about this Sabbath stuff. The penalty is as clear as anything else can be clear. You break God's command for the Sabbath, we'll put you to death. And if we had time, we could flip over to Numbers 15 real quick, and we could look at the story of a man who got caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. They bring him to Moses. Caught this guy picking up sticks. Moses goes to God, what do I do? God tells him, you gather the entire nation of Israel, and you execute this man right in front of me. God made a promise of what the penalty was, and he followed through on that promise, right? Now, many people would look at that story. In fact, a lot of people look at that story. And they would accuse God of wrongdoing for such a terrible punishment for what seems to us like a light offense, right? They would question and impugn God's character. How dare you? If I were God, I wouldn't. But a better question to ask would be this. How big? How lovely? How righteous? How eternal? How good? How holy does God have to be before breaking his commands are heinous enough to merit that kind of punishment? How holy, uh, how amazingly other than does God have to be before that's the actual appropriate response for, impun or for spurning his word? For having the audacity to tell him no? How big does he have to be? How lovely, how holy, how wonderfully good. And with a pastoral tone this morning... I would say this, the second you figure out how big that is, do yourself a favor, multiply it by whatever the biggest number you can imagine it is, and lock that down for your idea of who God is. It'll still be too small. But at least we're taking steps in the right direction now. We balk at these things because we see ourselves too highly and we see him too small. We balk at these things because we have, we have extravagant views of ourselves. And we have no idea who our God really is. If my kids have the audacity to tell me no, it's going to rile me up. Am I alone? It's not because I'm sinless or because my commands are always perfect. Far from it. If you, if you spend a couple of minutes in my house, you'll learn that real quick. But I'm also daddy. And me and the five-year-old are about to go have a little talk. Right? And somewhere in the mix of that conversation, the words are going to come out of my mouth. Who's the boss? Are you the boss or is daddy the boss? You had that conversation before? Man, I can't count how many times I've had that conversation. Are you the boss or is daddy the boss? Hear me, church. God is infinitely we cannot come up with a number big enough to describe this god is infinitely more worthy of our obedience than i ever will be infinitely more worthy of our obedience in every single way that we can think of it is his patience towards us as we spurn his commands it's one of the clearest testimonies of his perfect mercy 
You want to try to wrap your heads or head around just how merciful, just how slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love our God is? Get a correct picture of who he is as you tell him no. We dare to scoff at the one who holds our molecules together. The rest of creation says yes, sir, and does what he wants. We have the audacity to try to think we know better. And here's where it gets really interesting. Because while obedience to his commands is deserved by nothing but his character alone, The sheer fact of who he is deserves our obedience. We could hang our hat on that this morning, walk away, and we would be perfectly obedient to the scriptures. It's only part of the story, though. Because all of this assumes that God's commands can be arbitrary. Every bit of that argumentation still makes sense if God just makes up rules for the heck of it. God said so, he's the boss, he gets to make the rules. But the Bible teaches that God doesn't make rules arbitrarily. God never, ever, ever commands things in an arbitrary arbitrary way. Make no mistake, the creator and sustainer of the universe gets to make the rules. That doesn't ever go away. But being holy and sovereign over all of creation is not the only thing he has perfect character in. That's only part of his personality. It's not his only infinite attribute. He's also perfectly good and perfectly kind. And that means that his commands to you and I are never, ever, ever just because he's the boss and he says so. Ever. They are for your good. They're for my good. And that includes the commands for work and rest. That includes the commands for work and rest. So back to Exodus chapter 23. It is good and right to read Exodus 23 with the the understanding that God is the one who gets to make the rules I ought to listen. But let's read it this time the idea locked down that everything out of his mouth right now is actually for my good. Verse 10 of Exodus 23 says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall uh, let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Uh, 
You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, for let or let the fat of my of my feast, excuse me, remain until morning. Verse nineteen: the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So, what in the world do we do with this? I mean, we're not Old Testament Israel, right? We are not the covenant nation of people called to showcase God's character in a geopolitical way. So what in the world does this have to do with us? And listen, you don't want to be Israel right now. Because remember that whole thing about disobeying and being put into death? Like anybody want that? And so we're coming to this story as those who have had Jesus' debt paid on our behalf. And so God's commands for us no longer carry the do or else I will have to kill you because you defamed my name kind of consequence. But if it is true that God's commands are never arbitrary, and if it is true that they are always for our good, then that means that there's something in here for us too. There's something in here for us, too. So what in the world do we take away from this? Well, I think first of all, I think firstly, God's teaching us that, that listen, we, we need hard work and healthy rest. We need both. And there's probably stories all around the room right now of folks who didn't do one or the other of those very well, and it cost them something. Am I, am I right? Whatever your personality leans to, to doing better than the other, I'm sure you've got a story or two that you could share of, I failed to do this well, and it bit me. I think, I think God's teaching us that we need work and rest. So the rhythms that God spells out for Israel here, listen, they're downright sensible, folks. They work. Plain and simple, they work. And so maybe you're here today and you're thinking through the ways that you handle work and rest and the balance is off. Maybe even glaringly so. And so one of the things that we need to take away from here this morning is that this can serve as a wake-up call to us. It can be a wake-up call, an opportunity to correct some stuff and, and better line some stuff out. But hear me, church. It is only ever a half-step to look at God's commands in a pragmatic way. It is only ever a half step to look at God's commands in a pragmatic way. Yes, they work, but the best part of God's commands are always going to be that they lead us to worship the giver of those commands. That's what they're designed for. God's smart enough to make the commands to... to that he gives his people to, to work in a way that's, that's just otherworldly. He, he can do that. He's big enough for that. But at the end of the day, he wants to give you himself. Not pragmatic tips for living better. And so the second thing we need to take away from here this morning, from our text this morning, is that you and I have been invited into the work of provision, but neither you or I sustain that provision. You and I get to play a role in providing, but neither you or I ever get to carry the title of provider. That title belongs to God alone. You don't get to hold it. One of the main reasons that God's 
commands, rhythms, and rest. Uh, rhythms of work and rest. Rhythms of work and celebrations. Because you and I desperately need to see just how dependent on God we actually are. And by letting go once in a while, we can see that we were never in control to begin with. We need to witness and be mesmerized by the reality that God is the one who keeps this place spinning, not you. Certainly not me. He doesn't need your work ethic, and everything will be just fine if you let go. He's got it. He's got it. We need to see that it's under his control, not ours. So God commands them, take the day off. You need to see that I'm the one who gives you. You need to see that I'm the one who provides. You need to see that I'm the one who takes care of. You've been called in, invited into this work, but I'm the provider, not you. So work. Work hard. And then rest. God's commands work. I mean, he is smarter than us, but God's good commands are most rightly seen when they lead us into a deeper awe and a deeper dependence on who he is. Always. Always. They're for our good, but our greatest good will never be some temporary thing. It's the eternal thing. So press into him. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest and celebrate. So how do you respond to God's word this morning? I mean, what do we do with this? Uh, it probably depends on where you are spiritually. Listen, maybe you've got healthy rhythms in your life of work and rest. Maybe you're the person who works hard and then plays hard. Good for you. boy. But it's only part of the story, right? only part of the equation the larger purpose is to see and feel our dependence on god and so listen the divide here isn't between those who know how to work real well and then take a break the divide is between those who see their dependence on god and trust god in that dependence and those who have no clue those who think that they're the ones keeping the plates spinning and so if you're a follower of jesus this morning you're you're someone who has supposedly laid down all your attempts to clean yourself up before a holy God. You have, inst- you have instead seen your need for a Savior and you've called out to Him. So your response today is to press in the same way you did the first time. Not for salvation, but, pro- for, but for provision, for the rest He promises. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? Press into him this morning. Press into the one who can deliver you and sustain you and keep you. You press in. And you do that by repenting of sin and allowing the reality of his control to rip your grip from the things that you're clinging to. That's what you do. You can take your hands off because he's got it. It won't fall apart in his care. He's... He's much more trustworthy than you are, right? Like you could make the argument he was kind of dumb to let you have it to begin with. 
보자. 아 n 프레이 we're going to sing we'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning listen if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Jesus I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today I'm glad you chose to press in and ask good questions and see what it is that it means to follow Jesus as Lord listen you can you can respond to God's word today too you do that by repenting of sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation the God who has everything in his control, is also the God who's putting all the pieces that went wrong in the garden back together. My sin separates me from God, but Jesus comes and pays the debt for that sin by dying on the cross in my place. I'd love to tell you more about that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you're ready to trust Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, you come talk to me during that time. Point you in a good direction. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Exodus 23. I think we often gloss over commands to a nation that we're not a part of. But your commands are always for our good. And they're designed to lead us into dependence and greater love for you. So help us press in well this morning. God, help us see the rhythms in our lives. Maybe maybe we're the type that works real well, too well. And we think we're the one in control. We think we're the one bringing things to fruition, making it all happen. Convict us of that sin. There's nothing I have ever made that did not come from your hand. Even the creativity of it belongs to you. And God, maybe there's some of us in here who, well, we rest a little too much. Rhythms aren't rhythms. It's just one thing. God, give us a holy work ethic. You've invited us into a noble thing. God, show us your bigness, show us your goodness, show us your great love for, for us as, as we press into the work that you've called us to. God, for those in here who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself today? Would you make yourself known to them? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.